Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I do love data centers. I love data centers. I live in Brazil. I do. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I Welcome to the I Love Data Centers podcast. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio. I am truly humbled and honored that you've taken the time to spend some time with me today. Before we jump in, I'd like to let you know that this episode is brought to you by you. That's right, folks. This podcast exists because you want it to. And despite requests that come in for sponsorship, we have no paid advertising supporting this show. This approach gives me the opportunity to maintain an unbiased voice while conducting these interviews. I do have one request and ask of you, however. If indeed you do find these podcasts interesting and valuable, I would greatly appreciate it if you would do me the simple favor of recommending and sharing it through whatever medium you choose, offline or online. If you want to throw a hashtag, I love data centers, in any online shares you do, even better. Thank you once again, and I hope you enjoy listening to this next interview as much as I enjoyed recording it. Welcome, everybody, to yet another episode of I Love Data Centers. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, and I am stoked that we have Jacob Smith with me, co-founder and chief marketing officer at Packet.net. Jacob, you are a fellow twin, are you not? Uh, I think it's the other way around. I think he's my twin, right? <laughs> so, so Jacob and his brother Zach are the two co-founders of Packet.net. I also have a twin, twin sister, and being that my birthday was yesterday, I actually had a long conversation with her, uh, which was much appreciated. So, Aaron, I'm going to give you a shout out. Um, but Jacob, tell me a little bit, real quick, about uh, where you are right now physically and what packet.net is, and then we could dig into some some fun stories. Uh, sure, yes, yeah, so I'm coming to you not from New York City where ostensibly I work. Um, I actually live in Southern Vermont. So I, I live on about 130 acres in the middle of nowhere, so it's rainy. Uh, summer is going to come soon, they promise. And I'm in a, uh, <laughs> an old uh, pottery studio. Uh, when we bought our house, it was uh, owned by a potter, a very Vermonty thing to do. And so my office is an old pottery studio. So if you could see here, it would be a look like a workshop. Well, I, I got to say that doesn't surprise me at all, knowing a little bit about your background, um, which is is extremely eclectic. But uh, before I get into that, what where did you grow up? Where did you guys grow up? Uh, yeah, so I could see the fireworks from the original Disneyland out of my bedroom window that I shared with my twin brother. So I grew up in... Yorba Linda, California, which is in Orange County, sort of SoCal, so uh, which, you know, sort of the epitome of suburbia. <laughs> and um, my brother and I both made our way east in different ways, but for the same purpose. We were both really into classical music. So he played the double bass and got into Juilliard when he was uh, 17 and skipped out to New York City and never, never looked back. Um, I had a sort of more incremental a journey. I moved to Pittsburgh for four years where I went to Carnegie Mellon, not as a techie, <laughs> but hung out with all the techies, basically. Uh, uh, but as a bassoon player, I was a, as a musician as well. So I got a, a degree in, in music and then also in you know business because I was like, well, that's never going to work. I got I to gotta make sure I have some backup plan. 
And but I kept doing it, and I moved to Philadelphia, where I I played music for a long time in the opera company, and you know did all kinds of things in the music world, uh, but also always kept involved in tech and marketing and things that I just grew up loving and um, made my way to Vermont again with a musical tie. I used to help with the Marlboro Music Festival, which is sort of a chamber music retreat, kind of a place where people go in the old world to, you know, live together and be together for six or eight weeks every summer um, and learn from each other. So it's a really interesting sort of community that brought me to Vermont. Um, and when Packet got going full time, um, uh, we moved up here from Philadelphia and been here ever since. I love hearing those stories uh, because there's so many of us who are in the industry that people assume have, you know, deep technical backgrounds when in fact, you know, I was an econ poli sci double major, which is apropos because <laughs> I learned systems theory, but um, yeah. you know, your background in, in uh, orchestra and, and music, uh, you know, but speaking of which, like what, what got you into tech? I know we're around the same age, how old are you, by the way? Uh, I turned 40 in September, so, you know. There you go. I'm just going to say I'm in my 30s. How does that sound? Good? Yeah, yeah. I just turned 39, <laughs> and uh, I'm definitely feeling my age. Yesterday, um, evidently. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, what, I mean, the reason why I bring up age is, you know, we grew up with tech, right? So, uh, though I did have a rotary phone in my house when I was a child, uh, I did have a father who brought home uh, computers from his office for me to basically play around with and learn so that I could teach him how to use them. But what, what was your background growing up? What technology was around you uh, that got you intrigued and, and sparked that interest? Yeah, it's probably similar. I think that, you know, I think there's two things in that that you just mentioned. One is unqualified for tech is a thing. Right? And I think that that's just a matter of being curious and being builders and makers. That's part of the world we live in um, today. But, gotten, you know, a lot of us grew up, I'd say that's that hump generation they call the Oregon Trail generation. You sort of like remember analog, grew up with that. Like, you know, had no telephone, rotary phone, be home by dark kind of stuff. And yet grew up also with the rise of a digital world. And so <laughs> there's that funny article about the Oregon Trail. is like, if you played the Oregon Trail at elementary school, that's your generation. <laughs> so yeah. definitely straddling that. And for me, I had a similar sort of thing. I was always into tech because it was around, but, you know, it started out really early. It's like duck hunts, right? And talking about like the basics. But um, my aunt worked for IBM. And so my first computer was a PS Junior, I believe. Maybe it was a PS2. I can't remember the order. Uh, but, you know, five and a quarter inch floppy drives and all the good stuff. And that was cool. Um, it was interesting. It was around. Uh, but what really got me going is when Zach and I, you know, started our first business, which was an awesome business you know, lawn mowing and pool cleaning, 10 bucks a pop. Nice. Um, cash money, right? Fully subsidized yeah. by the parents. So that was fabulous. And the first thing we bought was, you know, like $2,200 that we saved for like two years on a computer, eight gigs of RAM, you know, this is 486, like, dream. <clears throat> and, you know, that was the day when you, you basically bought it from a guy who had a computer store, like literally making computers from parts. So you could, it was all customized, right? It was like, and how many of this would you like? And so there was a real maker sensibility around that. And that just kind of got us into it, right? It was the same thing that got us into like making RC cars, right? No different. Um, but that never really stopped. So I was lucky enough, I got into music, which in itself is a fairly mechanical <laughs> endeavor, um, totally different mechanic, older technology. But the, the, the lucky part for me is I landed at uh, Carnegie Mellon, 
Now, my brother landed at Juilliard, which was like, we're doing music here, and there's a tiny little computer lab up there, and that's where he hung out. And it was like basically the library. But there wasn't a tech scene. So he had to really search it out in different ways. For me, I was at Carnegie Mellon. It was the opposite. Uh, you know, the fine arts was a, was a great department there, but it, it was like the anomaly versus, you know, everyone is a mechie and a techie and a, every other kind of engineer. And so I just, you know, was lucky enough at Carnegie Mellon, you can basically audit or take any other course for no more money, which you pay a lot of money, so they let you go to all the things. As long as you could qualify in, you could go do it. So I would audit classes and hang out in the computer lab, which was 24-7. I mean, we had silly G's in there and, you know, all kinds of cool stuff. But, you know, I remember my first day at Carnegie Mellon, you know, you had to do your orientation kind of stuff, and they taught you FTT. Because, you know, that's how you have to store your student files at Carnegie Mellon in 1998. And so that kind of got me into the Internet, which I think is kind of different than computers, uh, but they're kind of coming back. And that's really the journey that got me into it. Like how we got back to this point is a totally different story. So. so I've got to assume with starting a business with your brother early on and being a part of a handful of org- companies and organizations together over the years, you guys still have a, a pretty close, tight relationship. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting journey. I think there's a few other brother co-founders out there, right? You know, uh, Dan and his brother at DigitalOcean, the guys who run Stripe. Um, there's some female versions of that as well. Uh, I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's super resilient. Um, we've always had a good relationship. We, we are definitely different. And I think that's a strength, right? Especially when you have co-founders um, in, a, in a startup, there's a lot of iterations. I'd say it's kind of like a marriage. <laughs> you never, like, you get married to one person, and then, you know, 10 years later, it's a different person because you both changed. And it's yep. that way with startups, except on, like, hyperspeed. So it's like every year is a totally new business and challenge. And that's a matter of being able to kind of confront each other with the realities. Because uh, when you start, it's very idealistic, right? We're going to do this, going to take over the world, it's going to be amazing. It just usually doesn't work out that way. <laughs> Yeah. And so, like, partnering with my brother, but mainly my twin brother, has been an interesting opportunity for us, I think, as co-founders that make us really close. The challenge has been the other way, where, I mean, you have a twin probably completing each other's sentences, right? That's not really fair to the rest of the company, because um, you can move so fast together. Uh, the challenge, of course, was learning to bring everyone else along with that um, when you know, you have that close relationship, it can be a little bit exclusive. So I'm curious, because it's rare to find um, owners of businesses who are related. So whether it's, you know, father, son, father, daughter, brother, sister, whatever it might be, uh, that operate and that operate well. Um, But you guys seem to have been operating extremely well. And what, and you mentioned that there are challenges of trying to, you know, manage that relationship and context with the rest of the people on the team. What, what have you done or how have you gone about managing that to uh, ensure that it doesn't become a, an issue and becomes more of a strength? Uh, great, great question. Yeah, that would assume that it's all working perfectly. It's certainly not. <laughs> but the results have been good, and that's, that's really gratifying. I'd say we both ran businesses before, smaller businesses. Zach had an exit uh, in 2011 and sold his hosting company, Voxel, to Internet. So that was certainly, you know, 60, 70 people. They were doing big things. But still, you know, that's kind of the top end. And I had run a bunch of, um, I had a marketing and consulting business that specialized in digital marketing. 
And, you know, it's a very different kind of business. But we have both had some entrepreneurial experience formally, in addition to the lawnmowing business and every other side hustle that we did uh, to make a buck growing up. Uh, but I, I think I think what's been helpful is that we, we started the business with a sense of, like, we want to not just have a great idea, but we want to try to run a good business. Um, something that, like, reflects our values, um, that kind of you maybe, I don't want to say control, but you can still inform even as you bring on investors and whatever. The only thing that can really do that is a strong sense of purpose. So we started, like, the very first week we started, which we turned five next month, back at five years old. Um, we started with, uh, with with a consultant we knew who who helped us just just get that on paper. Okay, what are your core values? Like, what are you really trying to do here? What does it look like five years from now? And it's shockingly consistent when we look back now, and we you know you're in that sort of startup mode and really trying to think about well, what's what's your vision and what's your mission and what's your purpose? And then you get busy doing all the things and all the compromises you have to do in order to make it work. Coming back to those like core values and like core purpose, like grounds us like so much. And so I think it's beyond just like the brothers working as founders. I think any co-founders or any business, it's very rare to find founding teams that make it all the way through. I mean, that's that's rare. And we've had some come and go on ours as well. And I think it's really a matter of like, are you really aligned on the the, the vision and the core values of the company? So that, that ties into the next question I wanted to dig into with you uh, as it relates to the growth of a company. And you guys have taken on a handful of rounds of financing. And my experience has been being in Silicon Valley for the majority of my professional career until I moved out here to Raleigh, uh, watching companies take on rounds and rounds of financing. It drastically changes the culture of the organization, of the company, as you have more and more voices uh, that have a stake in the business that may be conflicting with, uh, you know, the internal core values that you were just talking about. What what has that journey been like for you, and how have you gone about attempting to mitigate the outside voices from um, changing those those principles that you built the company on? Uh, sure. Yeah. Well, I think a uh, blessing in disguise. It was super hard. You, you'll be really surprised. Super hard to raise money for an infrastructure business in 2015. <laughs> like, you know, everyone looked at you like you were an alien. And still, you know, and even in our B round. So in our A round, we, you know, I think it was 53 straight up nodes and one yes. And in our B round, I think it was 54 straight up nodes and one yes. <laughs> and what you get out of that is you really find the investor or investors who believe in what you're trying to get. There's no simple way in which you go, oh, you know what you should do? You should totally invest in a business that could be seen as directly competing with Amazon, Google, and Microsoft. That's an awesome idea. <laughs> you really have to believe in like what we're – you have to get deeper than that, and it can't just be sort of like a, like a trend investment because there's not really I – mean, I don't know if you know anyone besides DigitalOcean in the infrastructure space that is venture funding. Everyone else is like a cloud on the side. Amazon, cloud on the side, Google, cloud on the side, Alibaba, IDM, you name it. They're, that's like a, that's their side hustle, very profitable side hustle. <laughs> right. um, but so I think the key is getting the right investors. We were lucky enough that it was really freaking hard to find them, that I think we got great investors. And, you know, that's something you can only find out later if you're truly aligned. 
Our first investment came from SoftBank out of Japan. This is actually SoftBank Corp, not SoftBank Vision Fund. We were sort of before the Vision Fund. And, you know, like uh, under the hood, if you dig into SoftBank, they're really a telco. They're a telco in Japan, really. And that's where the investment thesis came from. It's like an infrastructure-based, network-based company that wanted to invest in um, something that moved it beyond the green button, right? The green button on the phone. And that ended up being a really good strategic investment. Most companies get their Series A round from a, a PC firm, and we got ours from a strategic. So I think yeah, that that was different. That's that's actually a very key point that I want to I want to focus on for just a little bit. But was it they were already looking for or had a similar worldview as to how things were going to evolve, and there just happened to be complete alignment there versus looking at it from a pure. Um, financial standpoint of we're going to put an X in and have a disposition plan of in the next five years, you guys going public or being acquired. You know, what, right. Yeah. Was that, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I can't speak for Softbank. It's a big and dynamic company, as you know. Asa runs a very, you know, just a dynamic business. But I think there's a sensibility of thinking long term there, which is like you can see it in the vision fund. Invest in leaders of the like 2030 economy. Like, in ways that seem almost irrational. But it's like, no, that's, that's the world is going to change. Let's buy ARM. There's a trillion devices right, that are going to be made. Like, we want to be part of that. <laughs> and I think you can see that sort of long-term focus and you have to think that way with infrastructure. There's no sort of like, wham, bam, let's redefine the, the, the railroad tracks of the internet economy right. approach. So, yeah, I think that that vision was already there. Um, there were also practical reasons there. Um, and then our paths crossed in a very Oregon Trail sort of way. You know, like we ran into someone who knew someone who was like working at SoftBank in the, with that idea on the investment side and said like, wow, you guys got to meet. So we met and that was it. But that was like at the end of our process of trying to raise our Series A. So in the way, you know, we found each other, which in the end, that's how these things work. I mean, if anyone's raised money, this was my you know, packet the first time I've really raised money. I've sold a lot of things, but I never sold my company to investors. And uh, it's finding its relationship, it's getting your story told, getting it improved. I mean, doing it again now would be easier because I would say the right things versus the wrong things. But essentially, you have to find them in the needle in the haystack. Yeah. Well, that's, that is a great story, and I appreciate the, uh, the transparency there as to how it all played out. But um, how, how, are, how are your current investors kind of assisting with and helping shape the business today? Uh, I think, I mean, I'm not a VC, but if I were one, you could, you could probably believe me in saying you mainly invest in, in founders. Most people do. Um, there's also the fundamentals of the business and is it an opportunity? But I think in that sense, we've had enormous trust um, from our investors in our A round, which was SoftBank, with a minor investment from Dell Technologies, and then our B round, which was led by ThirdPoint, which is um, sort of the VC arm of a large uh, hedge fund, uh, but also Battery at Samsung and uh, Dell again. You know, really, it's just a trust in. Um, what we're doing. And so then that goes both ways, right? So we've really invested. One of the coolest things that we've done, and this is hindsight, 2020, you should definitely do this, um, mm -hmm. is we do a monthly management memo uh, to all of our investors. 
um, and all of our employees, everyone gets it, which includes like a summary of the business, like what's been going on, obviously all the financials, uh, you know, like which, which, which highlights matter for each department. It's basically been so useful because I think now we have, you know, somewhere close to 60 of them yeah, that we've done. And it's just an awesome sort of way to keep people aligned and understand versus like the board meetings or other ways. And it's also been huge for getting the right people on board. So like when we raised our Series B, same with our Series A, we, we just handed them all of our memos and said, here's the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is what we're doing. This is what yeah, we've done brilliant. that worked and didn't work. And there you go. Yeah, I love it. I'm a seed stage investor in a handful of, of businesses over the past God, 10 years. And I've always appreciated that level of transparency, especially when it comes out on a steady click, because um, it lets you know that the owners of that business have a grip as to what the heck is going on in their business and are not afraid of sharing sharing that information, you know, be it good or yeah, bad. And I, would, right? I would challenge you, like, can you remember what you did four weeks ago? It's kind of hard. <laughs> like, right. in your life, like, what was, like, what was four weeks ago in your life? It's really pretty difficult. So taking that, we basically do it on a rhythm. We get it out by the 10th of the following month, um, each month. And it's like a point for us all to reflect. It's not a lot of reflection. We're talking about we're spending a couple hours each on it. But that's a moment to look back and actually think about it. Because there's that old phrase, like people get busy working in the business versus working on the business. Super mm-hmm. true. Yeah, it's almost like a business journal, right? I, uh, I'm a big proponent of people doing personal journals so that they can reflect back just as you're saying on what the heck was I doing a, a month ago or a quarter ago or a year ago? And am I, am I evolving as a human and hitting the objectives that I, I hope to hit? And if not, why? Right. And you can kind of see your thought process through the whole thing that, uh, that's actually given me some, some food for thought here. I think I'm going to actually start doing that moving forward. Oh, definitely. Definitely ask your, uh, your, the people you invest in to do it. It's good habit. And it's not that hard. But the other part of that, which is, you know, operating a business, like if you're ever looking to get investment or, you know, we obviously borrow a lot of money, right? We're basically in the business right now. We can talk more about that later of flipping, you know, CapEx into OpEx for people. (laughs) So we borrow a lot of money. And, you know, if you're looking to sell your company, keeping your financial house in order from the beginning, like as if you had to come in one day and say, hey, package all up. I'd like to buy you or I'd like to invest in you or I'd like to lend you money. Uh, you can't just make that up later. That's where experience comes from and either having someone on your team, hiring someone, just getting that knowledge up front. You can't, it's so hard and distracting to fake it later on. Awesome. So that then leads into the conversation that I think, you know, those listening (laughs) probably want to hear, which is what the hell does packet.net do? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to say, I spent some money this summer and got packet.com. So watch out. We are now packet.com. All right. <laughs> it's cool because we, you know, we are proud of our .net. So what's packet doing? Packet's basically in the business of, uh, I would say democratizing, and this is a big word. You're talking to an artist here, but democratizing sort of the, the, the capabilities that hyperscalers have in terms of running infrastructure. Sounds boring, right? Cloud is just cloud. It all just works. Uh, but our focus is really on enabling like that. What they've done, if you get under the hood and you look at what Amazon, Google, and Facebook have done, is that they've figured out how to make infrastructure just work, like at scale, very efficiently, no matter what it is. 
no matter like where it is. That's actually really hard. It's not rocket science, but it's hard. Um, you can see like 10 years ago, probably Sean, you know, you could definitely make things work just by all HP or all Cisco, right? Use all blade chassis, everything will work fine. You look at what hyperscalers are doing, they're inter innovating infrastructure very quickly. Uh, we can get to that in a bit. Uh, but that's actually really hard to do. It's hard to automate it, it's hard to firmware management, it's hard to asset management, it's hard to like meter it. It's hard to do things that run a business on infrastructure at scale. And so what we do, most people know us as a public cloud, which is true. We're a public cloud because we really want to touch software. Software is, you know, eating or has eaten or is in the process of finishing eating the world. And the way you touch software right now is, is, is through automation. And you have to be a cloud experience. It can't be sort of like, let me ship you the box and you can try. That doesn't work. So we're a public cloud first and foremost because of that. And so a lot of people know us as a bare metal public cloud. It looks and feels like EC2. It just happens to be physical machines and non-overlaid networks. Please come and consume it. We'd love to have you. But where we're really going and the reason why we even built a public cloud is because we believe in a, a really diverse infrastructure future. Um, and we can get to some of the things we're working on. Uh, but we think it's not commodity, and we think it's not generic um, going forward. Cars driving themselves, you know, rockets, like talking to the wall, all that stuff is not generic IT. It's pretty specialized. And when you get to specialized experiences and you get them at any scale, you tend to start making the hardware around the software instead of the software around the hardware, which is what we're doing in the cloud right now. You're like, oh, cool, I'll just grab some blobs of compute, and I'll do my thing on top of it. Um, but you look at maybe the hyperscalers or you look at something in your hand, like your iPhone. Yeah. And there's nothing generic about the iPhone. It's all purpose-built for the experience of making iOS and that hardware be faster, better, cheaper, battery lasts longer, all the things. Uh, and I think that's the fundamental premise of what we are doing, is trying to make hardware basically a competitive advantage. So you, as a developer, can go and deploy that, no matter what that is, anywhere. That's a hard thing to do. Yeah. And, and related uh, around the comment, software is eating the world, right? Um, I remember Zach told me that when we were at the, the first infrastructure event that uh, Structure Research held up in Toronto two years ago. Um, and I was like, Zach, what the hell does that mean, software is eating the world? And he kind of looked at me cockeyed, like, are you an idiot? Like, are, how do you not understand <laughs> Where are you from, John? Yeah. And I was like, no, 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 man. Like, I'm in the infrastructure world, but you're talking about software is eating the world. Like, what does that actually mean? And he pulled up, um, I forget the name of the venture capital firm, um, but they had a really amazing, like, 90-page deck that had all the statistics. Oh, this how is battery ventures. Yeah, battery There you go. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and I want to share that in the show notes for everybody, so I'll, I'll do that. Yeah, they do listening. it each year, sort of their cloud recap. Yeah, yeah it's, it blew my mind, and it totally transformed the way I viewed what was going on in the world. And it, I just can't... Every time I think of this concept, I just can't stop at thinking of Steve Ballmer running around the stage, almost having a heart attack, yelling yeah, developers, really developers, developers, developers. <laughs> <I have laughs> um, which I may also put a link. I'll have to show you that. I, have one. I, I did a presentation recently, and it's Steve Ballmer, but I replaced all the developers with ecosystem, ecosystem. <laughs> I'll yeah. show you one. But the software in the world, it's a really interesting concept, and of course, everyone's like, yeah, true, of course it's true. 
but that's actually what got us to start the business. Is um, I think we were sitting, we were having coffee with Alex Gold. I think it was Alex. Um, you know, he had he had sold the last business and was going to start his next one, which was CoreOS. <laughs> and we we're like, Alex, what are you up to? And he's like, Oh, I'm I'm thinking about doing this like new Linux operating system. And you're like, What? <laughs> like, I thought we had Linux and it was good, and we have it, and it's fine. Ubuntu, right? Come on. And it was really interesting because that was kind of a light bulb for me, which is like, oh, they're going to keep working their way down. Like, oh, the OS guy can make that better. Um, yeah, network overlays, like, probably could reinvent that. What's this thing called containerization and service mesh and, you know, keep working down? And yet at the same time, clouds were abstracting users away from the infrastructure and say, oh, no, don't worry about that. Don't, we already decided. It's a VM. You don't need anything else. Or it's a, a you know, L2 overlay multi-tenant. Don't worry about that. And we saw a huge opposition with software, which is, by the way, massive, right? <laughs> There's just like millions of new software developers uh, that can touch infrastructure now thanks to the cloud. Uh, they don't have to ask anyone. Just do it. Um, and that we thought they would just keep working their way down further. And uh, that has proven to be very true. You look at the cloud native, you know, thing over the last couple of years, and, and, and it's, yeah, gone from being like, the operating system layer to like everything down below. And just kind of reinventing that is part of, I think, the software mindset. Move fast and, you know, start to chip away at it because, by the way, I'm probably smarter than you and I have my own opinion because I'm a developer. <laughs> and I think that we, you know, we have to reckon with that. What, what, what's really struggling in the industry right now, the data center industry, is that hardware is starting to move and react to software speed, which software speed you ship that code every day. You ship that code like 20 times a day. And the whole idea that you put some hardware in a data center and leave it there for seven years and that's good enough is just not true anymore. Yeah, so that, that, that concept I think is what I want people to take away here is we have God knows how many millions, if not at this point, hundreds of millions of developers around the world who have been focused on primarily the user experience layer of different applications. So software as a service uh, type of applications uh, where people are helping with productivity um, in their day-to-day -day lives. Um, I call that core IT, core IT. <laughs> gotcha. So core IT. And then what you're talking about though, is the software layer, like almost the, the firmware bio, BIOS layer, um, yeah. mm -hmm. systems layer where, the software that runs the core, well, that's where I'm confused about why you would call it core IT, because I would almost view the software that we're talking I just, about I, as core. I just think, I mean, sorry, this is my own view on cloud, is that we're generally dealing with pretty generic use cases. Right? Oh, my database now runs better in SQL. Um, you know, email suddenly is in the cloud. Like, we're basically been working through sort of like pretty generic IT stuff. Now, at, at good scale, we're doing applications and we're doing, you know, web apps and websites and, you know, things like mobile has become a, you know, we got Uber now, right? So, but it, it's not necessarily, like, come from the other world, come from HPC. Like, oh, I just have to maintain the nation's nuclear stockpile and, you know, you know make sure that we simulate what that would do if it had an accident. <laughs> you know, that's like, that's different kind of computing. And yet we're seeing those things come together now where it's like, okay, companies that used to be in like the car business are now in the mobility business and the data business. And so the generic nature of that is becoming 
Well, I think it's becoming a differentiation. You're starting to work on experiences that are much more immersive and, you know, not generic. So I guess I, I, I don't know if, like, if you took the, what's it called, the, uh, you know, layer, layer one through seven or whatever, like, we'd be talking about layer zero, like the one right below the software. And that's where the rubber meets the road, and some people call it systems, but basically software interacting with hardware. So that's that magic area where we like to live. Uh, and I think where a lot of the big things are happening right now at all the big, all the big companies. So whereas developers have become ubiquitous, right? And and there's more and more learning how to develop on the infrastructure that the cloud providers are are giving on demand. Um, what you're talking about is that they have not become ubiquitous in the network carrier, you know, wireless world um, that you guys are playing in today. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that it's still pretty uh, limited. A lot of, uh, you know, access to general compute networks has been made very simple, thanks to the cloud. Uh, access to actual hardware, you know, that's been our mission. I think that's kind of what we represent. Is like, oh, you want to touch the NIC? Oh, you want to play with BGP? Oh, you want to do that? Like, okay, cool. You can do that at Packet, but in a developer experience. It has to be automated. The whole idea that you know, you submit a support ticket and six weeks later someone gives you the right to touch it, that, that's not going to work. <laughs> yeah. But hardware itself is becoming more relevant. Um, and, and touching that is actually a problem. I mean, it is a problem if you're, I mean, think, think of something like um, GPUs. Right? So we all know GPUs. Uh, they're amazing. You can both mine Bitcoin and lose money, or you can, like, do machine learning, which is awesome. Mm. And yet... If you want to go and like buy GPUs, like the latest and greatest, like the one that came out whatever two months ago, you'd have to basically put it in your own data center or in your own like very hot apartment now. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Um, back, back up, back up for for our listeners. You said GCU. Oh no, I said GPU. G, you know, GPUs, graphical processing mm-hmm. units. Right? So, gotcha, you know, gotcha. GPUs that you do GPU, machine learning with. GPUs, yeah. and Paul. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, Paul. Right? So, like, what, you know, we all had in our computers to accelerate our games, basically, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then that became the basis of machine learning. It's a different kind of processor. It's focused on graphics, which is oddly unsuited to machine learning, but that's another topic. I think we'll see a lot more new silicon coming to market, like you see what Google's doing with TPUs and and everyone's making special silicon to do machine learning and AI because it's just different. Uh, but my point there was if you wanted to get that latest piece of hardware because it was important to your business or your research or your innovation, you'd either have to go and like buy it and put it in a data center and a server yourself, a lab or whatever you want, or you could get something in the cloud that was probably 12 to 16 months outdated, right, which is good. It's very good. You can get it in the next couple minutes. It only costs you five bucks an hour, uh, but that sort of lag is really interesting to me because what if you're trying to win? What if you're trying to be first, right? You're trying to innovate. Well, hardware is suddenly like kind of a precious commodity. When you ask your company that you work for, hey, I'd just like to get some more brand new, awesome market-leading thingamajiggers in our data center. They go, oh, sorry, we're closing down the data centers. We're a cloud-first company. So you go to the cloud and you get whatever the clouds have decided to make available, which is often, I mean, great for most use cases, not at all a problem. But if you're trying to, I don't know, innovate something transformative uh, or maybe even 
differentiate with that, it's a pretty sticky situation. So how do you bridge that gap? I think that you have to make an awesome experience for people. Not, not average, isn't everyone. This isn't an every man's game. Um, to access specialty hardware on their schedule. I think this is about basically the way I see the world. You can disagree with that. I love that, actually. <laughs> is that there are about 10 companies in the world who are really good at deploying technology. They're called hyperscalers and web scalers. Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, um, Alibaba, Tencent. Uh, and everyone else is pretty bad at it, right? It's, it's slow. It's... it's, it's uh, difficult. Um, they don't have those advantages of scale, which the supply chain does most of it for you. You give them specs, they design it for you, all that stuff. Um, instead, we're, we're at, at any sort of scale that you look at, most of the world is pretty bad at their, at putting technology opinion into market and using it at a global scale or any scale. And so I think that's our mission. That's what Packet's all about, is to try to get those next thousand you know, enterprises who want to win or those new startups who are going to disrupt. Um, the ability to look and act like a hyperscaler when it comes to saying, I can innovate on the whole stack. So a good example for that would be hardware, but also like location, right? Like what if you need to be, you, what if you want to disrupt financial service? Yeah, you're the new banking. Now you see Facebook came out with something, what, yesterday, two days ago? They're like, oh, we're going to be in the banking sector, right? We're going to do banking for people who don't like banks. Um, and they can because they have massive scale and technology infrastructure and user base, all these things. But what if you wanted to create something that was better? Well, you may have to be in like 80 or 90 regulated markets. Like you may need to keep your data in like Switzerland. I mean, suddenly you have to like get into the, I need a couple of racks of colo in every place in the world business. Which yeah, is, as you well know, compliance and <laughs> nightmare. Pretty hard, right? Pretty hard. You can't just be like calling up your neighborhood, you know, OEM or IT vendor and saying, "Hey, so I really want to do this special thing. I'm just going to need this special hardware in all these places. Um, could you do it for me?" The answer is generally like, "No." Oh, yeah, no. It's like, yeah, we'll definitely be able to do that for you, but let me get back to you, and it's going to cost you a ton of money. You're going to have to commit to long-term contracts. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right, exactly. And so I think that's the haves and the have-nots. I don't think it's about like, wow, the cloud is so amazing, it's such a big business. It is, but it's a fundamentally a right for the hyper and web-scale companies to play in any sector they want to. They want to be in gaming? Cool. Entertainment? No problem. Financial services? Yes, please. Mobility? Let's do it. Because they have this amazing technology advantage, which is, now, normally that would be really important, but because of the trends in the world of, of, of infrastructure and hardware, you know, Moore's Law kind of like ending and things moving into new architectures like accelerators, GPUs, offloads that are so, they're moving very fast, you know, like the innovation is not on 10-year cycle, it's on like a two-year cycle. That suddenly, like the ability to get stuff in and out and operate it is really a kingmaker. And I don't know if you know, but Facebook, spends more this year, is going to spend more on infrastructure like data centers and hardware than Amazon. It's crazy, but that's how much investment they're doing. They actually, I think, and not, don't quote me on this per se, that every 36 months or so, they really get rid of all their old hardware and get new hardware. I mean, that's just how quickly they cycle it out. 
because they're in an infrastructure-dependent business, and I would argue that most businesses going forward, maybe because software is eating the world and you're basically delivering software as a service or experiences as a service, <laughs> are infrastructure-dependent. It really matters. And that is, a, that is the wedge that we think cloud is really driving um, between sort of the haves and the haves-nots, and that's our, that's our mission is to make it a half for a company that says, oh, I could do, you know, fintech in a way that would change the world in a better way, and I've got this great technology, and now I just need to operationalize it. I need to execute on it. And as you know, you call the data center operators and you say, I want a rack, and they say, we sell megawatts here. Like, that's what we do now. Um, can please commit for three years or, you know, all these things that sort of provide huge barriers to entry. And I think we can, I think we can change that. So does that mean that you guys are constantly buying, procuring, deploying, and putting online the latest and greatest, you know, chipsets and, and hardware that's, that's coming out? Like what, what does that look like from a tactical day-to-day -day perspective for Packet? Well, we're, yeah, I think it's not about guessing and then checking. I think it's the other way around. You listen hard to your customer and you go make that happen. And in the old way, that was like, oh, sure, I'll buy that HP server and I'll rack it for you. That's called hosting. Um, for us, it's about a delivery and distribution model. So there's kind of three things I think you need. The first ingredient is you need access to capital. You know, where basically people want to rent stuff. I'm not sure if you saw, there's a great article in the New York Times this past weekend about millennials, right? It was like, you know, they love it, they see it, they rent it. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's not like you buy it. And so I think that that cultural and preference is really important here to understand. So you need access to capital. You need access to logistics. You got to put stuff places, like a lot of places, and then you got to service it and take it in and out of market. And then you have to be able to automate it. And it has to be consumable by a developer. So those three bits are really important. We're only really good at the, the third one. The other two, you know, access to capital. I mean, I have some DC money, but it's a horrible way to scale a business. <laughs> like, right. you know, logistics. Like, there are other people who do that, like, way better than I ever could. So what we're doing is we're really building the model, right? So for instance, on hardware, we know what we would call subscale deployments really well. You need a half rack in Pittsburgh, like I'm pretty much the best one in the world to do that. That's what we focus on. So I know that challenge and the operator problem, you probably do it too, you've been in data centers quite a bit. You understand that it's the cables and you know the homogenous issues and trying to get things in and out and needing like a really smart tech to do it versus like, just some person um, or a robot. <laughs> you know, you need to remove all those things. So we've been working really hard to basically make, let's say you, you would probably relate it to an open source blade design um, based on Open19, which came out on LinkedIn. It's sort of, I wouldn't say that it's like an anti-OCP, but OCP standing for Open Compute, which came out of Facebook. That's meant for hyperscaler data centers where they basically design the data center completely. Um, but so, when you go to Pittsburgh, you know, you don't get to design the data center. You just get to get a rack or tag. So hold on. Let's let's step back just two seconds um, to frame and define some terms here. Um, you mentioned subscale, right? And I think so hyperscale would be those as the, the providers that you mentioned, the Tencent, Alibaba's, Facebook's, Google's, Microsoft's and whatnot, who are are you bit they're everywhere and they're deploying megawatts and infrastructure all day, every day, all the time. Um, subscale would be what? 
uh, the complete, complete opposite. So I'll give you an example. Uh, I heard from a friend today that a recent, like I was like, we're trying to do a deployment. We're doing these deployments for a customer sprint, which is public. So I can say sprint. Um, and they need to be in like lots, lots of places for an IoT network product they're doing. Okay. And I was like, what's going on with that new deployment in this city? I was like, oh, well, there's a backup in switches uh, because one of the hyperscalers bought 16,000 of them. <laughs> and so our order for like 20, like just isn't getting fulfilled. Like that's hyperscale versus subscale. I need like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of switches or boxes. It's meaningful to me. But when you're doing 5,000 racks a month, um, that's hyperscale. So we're in subscale, which I just would take, often that's been called like really, that's, that's had a bad flavor in the mouth. Like, ugh, the hyperscalers are so good. I think they are. They're really good at putting a lot of the same things in a few places. Yeah. Football field size data centers. What we're really good at, and the only reason why we thought we could have a play in this business, is we're good at the opposite. I can make a lot of different things appear in a lot of places. That's a very different operational and logistical challenge. So you have to mm -hmm. kind of design for that. So that's what I call subscale, and we think it's super cool, so we don't feel bad about it. <laughs> um, branding is everything here. And subscale for me allows, if I think that way and I design an operational model that says, you know, this is very common. I mean, we're helping a, um, a new VPN service, you know, deploy, and they want to be everywhere, right? They want to be close to users. Um, they want to be global. Uh, they're taking off like wildfire. Awesome. Everything's good. So they need like three more servers in Francis. Not like 50, like three. <laughs> and can they be this size, not that size? And can it be bare metal for sure and network heavy? Yes. You know, they need what they need. And right now it's really hard. And what we're trying to do is make that like super great experience. So it may not be instant or on-demand or always available. That's like me buying stuff and choosing it in advance and then deploying it. And that's part of the model, but I don't think that's the way you reach those special use cases. Um, you got to go the other way. You got to have a really good model like FedEx. And, you know, you can order a, a MacBook Pro online tonight, custom, and you'll have it in five days from Taiwan. So it's totally possible to have like, you know, your flavor of ice cream, like delivered and, and show up. And that's really a matter of us activating those points number one and two, capital and logistics. Best case, not ours. Right? So we have a, a lot of great partners, partners there in the supply chain. You might know companies like, um, you know, Foxconn or Flex, you know, they, they're in the, they're called ODM, like original device manufacturers, and they make all the stuff. They're really good at logistics. They have like warehouses and things in 180 countries. So activating that to work towards a subscale model versus a hyperscaler model is something we work on. Another one is capital. Yeah. You know, how do you put stuff in hundreds of places that you don't know about? Well, we are working very closely with like SBA Communications, which owns 40,000 cell towers in the US and South America. And that allows us to stamp out, we have a data center in Boston uh, next to a football stadium that was stamped out in 60 days. That's pretty cool. Allows me a repeatable way to go anywhere. My customer says, hey, I really need to be in, in like Memphis. And I don't have to go looking for Colo in Memphis or build a building in Memphis. I turn to my partner who's like, yeah, I have a suitable tower in Memphis and I'll stamp out a data center for you. 
Yeah, no, I, I got you. And I want to come back to that, um, that topic of edge, right? Because that's really what you're talking about is deploying infrastructure outside of the major major markets where infrastructure and capacity is already ubiquitous, right? We're talking about, you're talking about deploying infrastructure, uh, customized infrastructure into, you know, second tier, third, not by tier, but uh, uh, non yeah, I'll football give you, I'll give you a city. Yeah, you say, yeah, non-internet football cities, right? So where the mm. current shape of the internet lands is basically a vestige of particular real estate and telecommunications infrastructure, where the fiber lands, right? 111 8th Avenue in New York, one Wilshire in Los Angeles, you know? So these are the famous parts of the internet, and by and large, that's where it's been for 25 years. Um, that's, that's shifting. First of all, you see hyperscalers kind of moving that and laying their own undersea cables, kind of cool. <laughs> so like the internet infrastructure is definitely changing, but why does Google own 111 8th Avenue? It's not for the office space. It's it's because they wanted to put a skate park, you know, on the on the convert the data center into a skate park on the, <laughs> yeah, they the floor. Kicked, that they kicked us all out, right? You know, so so it goes. But that's I think the world we're playing in. Uh, what we're talking about though is where where are the people, right? So New York being one and LA being another. I mean, those are a lot of people there. Um, but take Austin, Texas. I mean, all that traffic backhauls to Dallas. It, you know, there's no local interconnection in Austin of any note. So, you know, that's a really interesting problem for, yeah, Slack is a little slow and it's kind of laggy when you're trying to upload a big cat picture. But like, you know, when you get to more specific use cases <laughs> than that, which you can really add value, um, I think that's where we're trying to go. And we just don't know yet if our customers, I mean, some of our customers are telling us where we're going yet. They need to be in these cities. It's pretty regional. But it could get to the point, I did have a customer come and say, hey, cool, can we just be in six places in Atlanta? And I was like, you're not from the data center world, are you? You know, because like, what do you mean six places in Atlanta? Why do you need that? It's like, oh, well, we're in the autonomy business and we help offload traffic from cars and so we need, you know, to be able to do that and pre-process it. Okay, that's an interesting challenge. I like that challenge. Mm -hmm. But there's like, there's six 7-Elevens, but there's not six data centers, you know, like geographically dispersed. So I think you see, you will see the network shift around 5G and like basically wireless starting to move. Um, but mainly you're going to see like, how do I get compute where I need it? It may, it may not be big compute. It could be little. It could be like, oh, I just need a smart NIC and a Kubernetes cluster and I'm good to go. <laughs> mm. That looks like a IT closet basically. But it doesn't have to be. Cloud to me doesn't mean size. It means like, is it automated? Can I deploy it with Terraform? You know, if so, cloud is whatever. Cloud could be an ARM server on a telephone pole or a Dell server in Ashburn. Same right. Yeah. Um, so another another uh, thing that you mentioned that I want to dig into, which is this Open19 Foundation, which I've never heard of until I started digging around on the website before the the, the conversation here. Can you explain what Open19 Foundation is and what, what they do? Sure. Yeah. So Open19 um, was created out of LinkedIn. So um, LinkedIn is a great example of an almost web scaler. Now, of course, owned by Microsoft. So certainly there. But they started working on, hey, how do I get, you know, I need to do like 10,000 servers a year. How can I make that more efficient? And the 19 in it is really important because it stands for 19 inch. So you've been in a lot of data centers. 
what's the standard width of wraps? 19 inch. <laughs> OCP, which is what came out of, of Facebook and the other hyperscalers now adopt a lot of it, open compute is another standard, but it has like 21 inch wrap. That seems that. Which uh, there's a disconnect there. There's other things such as you know, in the design of um, hardware, you know, where you put the cables, where you don't, where you put the power, where you don't. And so what Open 19 is as a foundation is, first of all, a holder of just some very limited IP, um, which is really important here. Sort of in OCP, if you're going to make something to an OCP standard, you basically have to donate that design to OCP, to the foundation. Open 19 allows you to keep all of that IP, you just have to use one common connector, sort of a blind mate connector at the back of the server, is the IP that the foundation ho holds, and you have to leverage that in order for the thing to work. And what it allows you to do is basically get rid of the cable. You know, so the most expensive part for me to get three servers into Pittsburgh is not the servers or the shipping, it's the labor. Right? So I have to send someone who knows what they're doing, who's not going to unplug the wrong thing uh, and mess up my, like, Sprint deployment next to it, right? <laughs> and actually make that work. And so Open 19 basically looks like um, you pre-deploy these sort of sheet metal um, enclosures, call them cages, racks, whatever. They sit within an open, within a 19-inch rack uh, dimension. And that includes uh, your white box switching and your power and your cabling. So it's pre-deployed. And then what I can do is I can literally slot in like a blade any compute that fits that standard into any part of that enclosure. So I don't have to go and do a whole rack of the same thing. I can do two here, two there, and I can have basically the UPS guy do it. That's the goal. Okay. So that's the standard. It's been evolving. Um, LinkedIn is obviously using it. We're really the first production deployment outside of LinkedIn, and we've gone and invested a fair amount in making our own uh, improvements to that and making our own hardware with um, a variety of ODM manufacturers. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, okay. So you've made, you've made a comment. Um, I think when we were talking prior about how hardware and the network later, hardware and network layer are not a commodity, right? And yet, all I see and hear about is the commoditization of hardware and network, especially with a lot of the um, mergers and acquisitions and consolidation going on in the industry, which has created its own set of problems and issues in and of itself. Uh, but how, how, how are you framing it or looking at it and viewing the world such that hardware and network are not a commodity? Yeah. Um, I remember writing one of those core values, you know, when you started the company. And uh, it was something like, you know, infrastructure is not a commodity, it's a craft. You know, and it said it's so good to me. And I showed it to someone and they literally laughed out loud. <laughs> They're like, That's you say it's a craft, C-R-A-F-T? Yeah, craft. Gotcha. And, you know, I, they laughed out loud. They said, That's embarrassing, you can't say that. I still think it's true uh, and I'm excited by it. I think there's a commoditization of a lot of the components, like, no doubt, right? Things are getting disaggregated where you used to buy specialty appliances with ASICs in them. And now in the network world, you have white box switches with software. I think that's more the trend of software eating the world than it is about hardware becoming commodity. Um, the opposing force there is really 
I blanket it under Moore's law. You know, Moore's law about sort of every two years or so, the number of transistors you can fit, you know, doubles. So you just get this natural evolution of performance to the end of time, except physics, right? <laughs> and so now we've got that's not happening. It's, you know, three, four, five, six years in between that sort of doubling. And so you can't just use sort of like the one size fits all processor. The early examples of that obviously include accelerators like GPUs, um, but smart mix, uh, FPGAs, uh, you know, machine learning or AI specific silicon. You know, basically those are bits of silicon that do just one thing. So look on your, um, do you use a Mac or do you use a, you know, Linux? What are you running? I've got a Surface, Microsoft Surface. Okay, cool. Awesome. I, is it with the, the Qualcomm ARM chip in it or? With the, you don't care. Probably. To be honest with you, I don't have a, I don't have a clue. That's a good question. Yeah, I have no well, idea. They, they, yeah, the new ones, um, some of the new uh, Windows laptops obviously include um, a different chip because they made Windows work on ARM, and then you can include, like, Wi-Fi that works all the time and is during the battery, you know, things like that. But either way, it doesn't matter. It means it's specialized. What I was going to bring up is on the Mac, you know, if a lot of people have the Mac with the touch bar on it, when you use your finger right there, that's a little... It's, it's a purpose-built, you know, uh, Apple-built piece of silicon in there, which was their first ARM chip. Now, of course, they're making their own chips for their phones and then probably the rest of the computer, too. Mm. Um, but that's specialty silicon. What does it do? It reads the fingerprint and unlocks this and does that. Right? It's like, I mean, is it commodity to Apple? Sure, they make a billion of them, but it's special. <laughs> and I think you see that everywhere. Obviously, in the data center, it's, it's only at the edges at the use case when you're like, oh, I really care about network throughput and I'm doing this one thing at the network. So why would I send all of that to my expensive, you know, Intel Xeon Gold processor in the middle and have it do that? When I could have the NIC do it for like 300 bucks, I could buy a NIC or a thousand bucks or whatever you do, a smart NIC with some specialty silicon on it that just does that one thing. So I can wrap traffic from there. Suddenly, you change the economics of your server. You're not using it, uh, what I would say, inefficiently. You're optimizing that. So that's happening. Like the hyperscalers are doing it at scale. They're basically distributing um, components throughout a data center and uh, finding increased performance and efficiency by doing that. But even on a smaller scale, you're just seeing where people are tweaking with the hardware to make it more efficient. Could be as simple as like, I want double the RAM. It could be like, I want Intel Optane, you know, persistence dense because I can get like RAM-like performance for disk. Okay, that's cool. Depends on your use case. So I think the idea that it's commoditized, that's more about the consumption. Does it feel like breathing air or pumping gas? It, that's kind of what people want. And I agree that that's the way it's headed. It's sort of like an amazing ability to spin up and do infrastructure-related things without thinking about it because it's abstracted. The logistics and the data centers are all abstracted. But is, on the hardware level, it's becoming more specialized. And so that's where I'd say it's a craft and not a crime. Yeah, the, I would say that the buildings themselves, right, and even going to this Open19 project, right, to trying to create a commodity form factor for you to put specialized infrastructure with it. Yeah, sure. I'd say that's absolutely right. Are you into space? Do you like satellites and stuff? I mean, I love space. <laughs> cool. So I don't know if you know how like satellites get into space, um, but rockets, man, rockets. Rockets. I see. For sure. it, yeah. 
<laughs> There's a common form factor, though, that was basically an exercise. I don't know if someone at Berkeley or whatever had his students design, like, okay, here's the size of a box. Make a thing fit into it and set it up in space. And that became, like, the form factor for shipping, like, scientific and research satellites in space. Like, that is the form factor. <laughs> and the idea of it is, like, okay, we need a delivery mechanism that is consistent. You know, just like you don't have 29 different sizes of boxes mm -hmm. or pallets or whatever, right? Shipping containers, you know, we're, oh, yeah, this is great. It's like Docker, it's containerized. But, you know, you look at shipping containers and they're all the same freaking size, right? Right. So that they fit on ships and trains. <laughs> um, so I think it's more about the, the, the delivery mechanism. Uh, what's inside of it, I think, will be very special. Gotcha. You know what, what's amazing, and it's just dawning on me, why I love the industry that we're in is what we're talking about is definitely different and unique. And these conversations, at least in my world, are not had on a regular basis and understanding the nuance that you've been digging into about all these different form factors of the hardware and how that can affect application, speed, size, scope, um, and even cost, right? That it's like it caters so much to my ADHD and that there's always... <laughs> There's always new rabbit holes that you can dig but down. John, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it just be like, I just think that's why it's important to celebrate infrastructure. Not because everyone needs to care about it the way you or I do or get excited. Like a lot of people could be go like snooze, like I just want to make my app faster, like whatever. Right. I think it's like there's this massive trend in the world. Like what's one of the defining trends? Like craft is this thing. Like, I mean, 10 years ago, we all drank shitty coffee. Like now we don't. Like we care about it, we distinguish, we have personality related to it. I think that that's a huge part of what drives the next fire. The next fire is a, let me use crass words, a hipster millennial who doesn't come to the office and still spends millions of dollars on your cloud bill every month. And yet that's the person in charge. What makes that person tick? You know, they have, as we know from research, you know, more identification with the values of a company, how it's done. They have an opinion about it. They're, you know, I mean, you don't like Node.js, there's a new version this year that is better, right? I mean, it's like, I think that that element of craft and, and individuality uh, is not, like, infrastructure is not immune from that. Everyone might not care about it and it's kind of hidden, that's okay. I think we need to be okay with the fact that people don't go, I love art servers. No, they don't want servers. They like what they can do with servers. But there is an element of craft that's kind of like kind of infusing, I think, the most innovative people and companies. And when you do things at scale, you have to craft them. You can't just sort of, you know, it just can't be rough. You know, it has to be polished in order to really get the cost or the performance or the experience, the user experience, all those things. And that's really why I say it over and over again, is if we think about it like a craft instead of a commodity, well, suddenly it's like, it's like the FedEx promise, like, I'll deliver your package anywhere in the world in 24 hours. That's like blew people's minds. Well, what if I could say, I'll get, you know, your custom infrastructure into global markets anywhere in five days. Well, suddenly, people would think about the act of using infrastructure as a tool very differently. If I say, oh, cool, you can get it. It just takes, you know, 12 months and commit up front and buy it at scale. Well, people go like, that's not for me. Yeah, I, I keep coming back to, and this is kind of a sidebar, but I'd love to get your feedback on this. Um, 
you know, the matrix, you've probably seen the movie, the matrix, um, you know, a lot of great things about that movie and horrible things about that movie. But one of the scenes that just constantly <laughs> we comes all, back. We all know it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the scenes that always comes back to me is when, you know, the mayor of Zion or whatever the, you know, the council leader of Zion takes Neo into the underbelly of Zion, which is this you know, community that exists in the, the miles below, um, the surface of the earth where humanity is left to reside and, and try to survive and, and while the machines take over the world. Um, but he shows them all the mechanics and all these big moving gears and parts that uh, are down there that are running the society of Zion. Right. And he says, look, there's two people, you know, to summarize it, there's two people that understand how all this stuff works. If anything happens to those two people, we're totally screwed. Right. And I, I can't help but relay that to what we live in the, the world that we live in today. Right. So this brave new digital world that we live in today where everything just works seamlessly and ubiquitously. And we don't think twice about all these electronics and digital things that we play with that um, help us from finance to transportation to you name it. Right. And yet the reality is there's so few people who understand the fundamental basics of how all this stuff operates at the core, core level. Um, and that's where I get excited. That's where I get very interested in why I do a lot of the training and education. And that's, to be honest, the whole reason why this podcast exists is I want more people to become aware of and to get excited by this core level of infrastructure that runs this brave new digital world that we live in today. Because it's a, it's interesting and it's exciting, uh, but it's so absolutely necessary. And if we only have a hundred people um, that understand how this stuff works, yes, those people are going to make obscenely good livings <laughs> because they have <laughs> a specialized knowledge, right? Uh, and stuff that's so critical. But I, I want to ubiquitize that. Like I want people to understand how this stuff operates uh, at a core level. And I love the fact that you guys are doing what you're doing because you're helping in that process. You know, you're, you're making people. Access. Yeah. yeah. It's about access. And I mean, obviously I think it's also, this is something, by the way, we're hiring and we can train what we do. Like it's totally a train up world. Um, and you see that I think in, in software, it used to be like, uh, software developers, where's your degree from? And now it's like, we've got places like, you know, Pursuit in New York that are graduating you know, hundreds of people a year into software jobs who, you know, didn't know software a year ago. And I think that that's really what we can do in the infrastructure world, call it the data center world or anything else. Uh, I'm a bassoon player, right? You know, like, it's not like I'm sitting there innovating all this by myself, but I think there's a creativity that you can bring to it. You can certainly learn it. The number one gaining factor, though, Sean, is access. So if, if data centers, it's like you and I grew up and you could go to the Radio Shack or buy that computer from the computer store. Now if you like open up your laptop, you'll avoid the warranty. So like you can't do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so tinkering and the ability to break stuff, you know, at the data center level, like we're working on a partnership with our friends at Grafana, you know, um, to basically bring metrics to data center stuff, switches, PDUs, EMC, stuff that most people can't touch, right? Because that's just handy. We think that that can be touched and should be touched, that lots of people can innovate on those things um, and that they're going to have to, right? And so it's a matter of saying, how do I give you access in a way that, that you want it, right? If it's like, hey, you can come down to my data center on Saturdays at 9 a.m., free donuts, 
we're not going to get a lot of people. If it's like, hey, you can touch this programmatically and interact with the bits, and you can break it, and we have a way to get it back for you. If I can do, like, maker shops for, like, the digital <laughs> crew, I think you have a really interesting way to bring people into systems. And so far, Sean, I've been so impressed with people who come into our world who are, like, born in the cloud, never touched a piece of hardware, actually probably still haven't. And yet they become so freaking empowered around systems level, low level stuff. They're telling us what to do. Right? These are naturally innovative, scalable people, and they're coming in and touching hardware, you know, programmatically, but they're breaking it. And then they're fixing it. They're learning how Pixie Boot works. And they're, you know, saying, like, oh, you can take that from a four minute boot process to a 45 second boot process if you do this. <laughs> and I'm like, that's a great idea. And I think that's, that's kind of like what gets me excited is how do we listen and attract those people and, yeah, celebrate this as a craft versus as something that they don't need to worry about and invite them to innovate on it versus to say, don't worry about that. We got this. So out of curiosity, have you guys gone back to Carnegie Mellon or some other universities and try to align with their engineering uh, departments to build uh, you know, curriculum? that can help, you know, not only help educate, but probably feed you talent into your own organization? A little bit. I mean, so we have a new new outfit in our company called Packet Labs, which is our sort of R&D department. And we certainly started working there with, with some research um, institutions. Uh, we've got, you know, we've been back to Carnegie Mellon a few times to mainly invite people into our world. I don't see it yet as a training ground, although we've, we've definitely brought some interns in and things like that. I think it's, um, for us, we focus right now, like we're, we work really closely with a, a comp with an organization called SHIFT, and SHIFT helps to place uh, military veterans as they come off of their deployments into um, tech jobs and other kinds of jobs. So we've, you have a fellowship program, um, which is like three months, and the costs are shared between you and the um, the military, and then they basically apprentice, and then you can, um, you know, hire them at the end of that um, if it works out. And so I think we have done like 25 apprentices this year, and we've hired like 15 people off of that. And that's kind of exciting to me because I think a lot of what we do is not, um, I don't want to say it's not like highfalutin or or sophisticated. I think there's a lot of a lot, a lot that's really important to it. The thing is, as a company, you want to you want to tr attract and, and train talent who will stick with you and get that culture and go with it. And sometimes in the in the tech world, as you know, Silicon Valley and whatnot, it's it's competitive and people can flow and they can go work for Google and make a lot more money. And that's the reality. And so we've definitely tried to train up as much as we've tried to bring down. No, I love it. Um, ironically enough, I've got one hired now who's my right-hand man aaron wagner uh who came out of a similar program that i pulled out of uh fort bragg down in fayetteville north carolina and we have another starting in august through a similar type of program so i highly recommend anyone listening to this who's has access to those organizations or is curious about them to to reach out to either of us to learn more absolutely um, because those, anyway, I don't, I don't want to go on a, a soapbox here, but I have so found Sean, can, those, I, can I bring one, yeah. one crazy big idea before the end? Sure. Of the podcast? We'll love to. Yep. Yep. I mean, it, it's been like super fun and I feel like 
I guess you're supposed to talk on a podcast, but thanks for letting me talk so much. <laughs> um, what's, what, one thing that's been on our minds a lot, because we've been doing this, a lot of work in the wireless and telco space, um, which everyone knows 5G, right? 5G is the best G since 4G. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. And yeah, we, you know, we're, I'm rolling out 7G, so if anyone wants to learn more about 7G, <laughs> they can reach out. I'm, I'm raising a $10 billion uh, fund to go after the 7G market. Right, to, to fulfill the promises of 5G, you'll be 7G. Perfect. <laughs> I, I totally agree. And the thing is about that, let's break it down. It's basically, it's, a, it's, it's obviously there's changes in the technology and different spectrums and, you know, faster, right? It's all faster. That's the whole idea. What does that mean? More bandwidth. And so what that's driving in the telco space is they can no longer sort of backhaul all the data and you know, tag it and bill it and process it and route it in like three or four places, which is how it currently works. You know, things backhaul to like Kansas and centralized locations. But when you're, you know, putting off, you know, tens of terabytes of data in market, you know, per pop, you suddenly can't just, it's just economically not feasible to do it. So 5G, forget all the like self-driving cars and flying taxis for a second. It's really about how do you push the network and run the, the core components of that, the ETC, the evolved packet core, you know, closer to the radius. So you don't have to backhaul the traffic. Um, it's a cost issue. So that's presenting a really interesting challenge for the telco space because they're having to push infrastructure into market in really subscale deployments, like, you know, two to 10 racks of, it looks like a central office down the street from you, like that little building that has, I don't know, you know, whatever telco you're in, <laughs> Pac West, you know, Pacific Bell or whatever, you know, on the wall that looks like that size. And that's um, really tricky. Long story short, we've been playing with the wireless guys a lot, the tower people and whatever. And I'm just so excited uh, because the wireless world we touch every day. You know, you and I, I'm talking on my cell phone right now, and obviously we use it for work and everything everywhere now. And by and large, developers don't touch it. Like, they don't touch the wireless uh, ecosystem directly. They use it. They consume it. Maybe they even get an app to go on your phone. But all the things in between that, not really the world of developers. Whereas in the data center world, that's become like fair game. You know, multi-cloud, SD-WAN, overlay network thingamajigger. Yep, we got that. But then you go to wireless, and that's like the domain of a few big companies who have been doing specialized stuff like Ericsson and Nokia and Huawei for, you know, 30 years. I think that's going to change. We've got a lot of new spectrum coming out. We're seeing venue-specific things like at stadiums and um, esports and uh, office buildings where, you know, basically companies like the NFL are becoming wireless providers to their audience. And so I'm just super excited, and I think a lot of people don't think about that, that wireless is the thing that we will probably see developers take over, and I don't think they've touched it at all. So that's a big idea that I thought no, I that's, I love that idea, and that's something that uh, I've talked with Hugh Karspecken over at Dart Points about and Hunter Newby oh, yeah. about, yeah. Um, and a project that we, that we all have together called Allied Colo, where we're trying to bring the... Uh, Bring the the internet exchange closer to these rural rural markets and rural communities so that they don't have to um, a backhaul as much traffic as they do currently, but b give a home that's uh, a hardened home inside these these rural markets to 
serve a variety of purposes. And I already know that Zach and Hunter are, are talking through a variety of ways for, for us to be playing together in that capacity as well. So lots of fun stuff going on in that arena. Um, we've talked through so, so much. And, you know, one of the topic or one of the questions that I usually ask my, my uh, guess is around misconceptions in the market. And I think we've actually hit a bunch of them already, but I'm curious if there are any other lingering uh, misconceptions that you hear or see routinely in the marketplace that uh, you want to debunk. Uh, well, the, the one I was going to hit was that craft versus commodity. That's the big one for me. It's sort of my mm -hmm. buck. So I think that's a misconception. Um, the other one is just that it's a solved problem, like that cloud and infrastructure is a done game and that it's just going to keep expanding like this. I think that's a misconception. I think it's a, it's a, you know, it's well founded, right? <laughs> it's not like completely out of left field that people would think that. But I do think we're kind of like in the first phase of cloud, which is fairly generic. I like to call it sort of retail banking. You know, there's like one on every corner, and it has a penny machine and free pens. You know, and that's like the cloud of today. And then there's like wealth management, <laughs> which is. Totally different. Nothing generic about it. Like that's to me kind of an analogy for cloud of today, which is a generally works for everyone most of the way. Eighty percent bell curve. Um, everyone uses the same kind of stuff. It's all good. Uh, versus what I think will define the next wave of cloud is kind of the wealth management side. It's like, huh, <clears throat> I have a real problem here because I need to be in 150 regulated markets with just my thing in order to make cars drive themselves. And, It'd be really great to to make that cloud-like in this experience, but otherwise it's completely different. I think that's a misconception that we just kind of keep expanding the current cloud and it's just done. I think the first wave is done. It's totally won. The next one is wide open. Yeah, amen. I couldn't agree more. Um, and I love I love your uh, your passion for for the industry and what we're doing. There's very you know when I say that I love data centers and I think that what we do is actually a lot sexier than most people realize. People look at me funny and think I'm insane, but um, as they dig in and they start walking through the, the crazy in my brain, they start to realize how nuanced and unique and interesting and different it, it really is. So, have, Sean, have you ever given a, have you ever tried to explain to like fourth graders how the internet works? How the internet works? Yeah. Yes, I do. I use it through, um, you know, obviously trying to bring it down to, to something that they understand, right? Which is communication. So when it's you're really, talking, it's really funny though. Like when you, like we do, we do this. Zach and I do this. We get our elementary schools and other stuff, and and we do like how the internet works as a talk. And it's so yeah. fun because the part where you're like, and then we use crystals to turn light into data, and that's how Netflix. Yeah. They're sort of like, you know, because you just ask the question, how does how does the internet work? And and I mean, even the adults in the room, like they're like, it's in the cloud, but it can't be in the sky because that's not possible you know they really don't know <laughs> right and it's a lot of fun to take it down to magic crystals because that's like pretty very cool i mean we're talking about speed of light issues and you know the fact that it even works you know in a shockingly collaborative way which is like and then we peer with each other for free i mean what you know that's not how the world works the internet has right. this amazing idealism natural technology that i think we're kind of at a moment of whether or not it's kind of survives that way going forward. Like, does yeah. it keep being that way? That's up to us, right? That's up to us. That's a whole other podcast episode right there, buddy. 
So the the other question I had is what what is one of the key lessons that you've learned in your career? So like if you could go back to your younger self as you were getting started, you know, what what is some wisdom that you would drop? You know, whether you'd listen to it or not at the time, which I know if I went back to my younger self, I'd probably yell at myself to get out of the room and stop telling me how how, how to do things. I could figure it out on my own. But uh <laughs> What is what are some of those key nuggets of knowledge that you could share with the listeners? Sure, sure. So I don't have any any perfect magic bullet, but, but I do think that there's. Uh oh, we got RGB in the background. Yeah, sorry, I, I, I was sorry. pulling a Pez out of my uh, my, my BB <laughs> BBA Pez dispenser. No worries. So my background is as a musician, uh, as you know, and I didn't realize till throughout later in my business career how useful that's been. And I kind of, what is that? I mean, there's obviously particular things about anyone who's been to a high level of sports or music or your kind of discipline and self-starter and all that. But I think the coolest thing I learned was around collaboration. Uh, collaboration isn't just like efficiency. Um, I think it's a give and take and knowing when to be wrong and when to let someone else's voice come through. And that that's when things resonate. Right. In a musical world, you say it's like, wow, that's like really, it's in tune, it's resonating, it's, everyone's aligned. Like those are business concepts that are very hard to like implement because you tend to get someone who just talks more at you and tells you to do it that way. So like I go back to uh, the, the, my basics in like chamber music and orchestra music where you had to listen and you had to adjust. It couldn't be like, no, I'm in tune and you're out of tune. It doesn't work that way. Let's like, make it in tune. You know, like, like get on the same beat, you know, we're in this together. That sort of alignment is what really breaks down in companies and you start to slow down and you're not hearing the same things. So figuring out how to compromise and listen as part of leadership, basically, how do you play second chair versus first chair all the time? <laughs> I think is the thing that serves me the most because you'd be so surprised how much your colleagues and even people brand new to your company can teach you. That is great. Great advice. Um, well, Jacob, I love talking to you, man. This has been great. I'm sure we could go on for another five, six hours on so many different topics and we just might at a future date. Um, I have one last question for you before we sign off here. Sure. I'm sure you, you know what it is, but do you love data centers? <laughs> Dude, I love data centers and I never thought I would. <laughs> Yeah, no joke, man. I was actually just my daughter. I was talking to my daughter this morning. She said, hey, so 10 year old daughter sitting at around the table. And she's like, what do you think I should be when I grow up? And I was like, honey, you can be whatever you want to be at this point in your life. All you have to do is learn how to learn. She's and she knows everything already at 10. So she's like, I already know how to learn. <laughs> my teacher that. told me. Yeah, my teacher told me I'm such a great learner, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, honey, all you have to do is learn how to learn. If you told me at even age 25 that I would be doing what I'm doing today, I would have told you you were out of your mind. And yet here I am doing what I'm doing today. You know, um, it's so, the, the rules of life. Uh, you know, show up on time, don't play in the rest. Right? So, you know, show up for life, show up for work, uh, and get figured out. So, Amen. Well, thank you again, cool. Jacob. Have yourself a great it's day. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Jeff. Peace.
So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, The Data Center Collocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week, and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.